The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I can't create my own internet or electric grid or interstate highway system. But I can vote and advocate for policies that, with enough citizen support, make these things possible. I call these advances solidarity dividends. They're gains that could only be unlocked through collective action. But communities that are racially divided can't muster the power to win the policies they need, often leaving wealthy private interests to set the rules. It's Thursday, everyone, and welcome back to the next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett. Today, we're going to hear some big ideas from the New York Times bestseller, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together by Heather McGee. Heather takes a fresh and somewhat surprising approach to racial division in the U.S., an economic approach. On a journey across the United States, she studied how ordinary people were handling national problems like student debt, job displacement, crumbling infrastructure. She found that a zero-sum mindset was setting groups against one another, often along racial lines. And in her book, she suggests the way out of this bind is to focus on common interests and shared goals. Here she is with some of her big ideas. It's not just you. Americans can't seem to have nice things. And by nice things, I don't mean laundry that does itself or hovercraft backpacks. I mean the most basic aspects of a high-functioning society. From a robust public health system to deal with pandemics, to reliable modern infrastructure, or a well-funded school in every neighborhood, or wages high enough to keep workers out of poverty. And by Americans, I mean all of us both the white Americans, who are the largest group of the impoverished and uninsured, and the Americans of color, who are disproportionately so. You're not wrong to think the U.S. is singularly stingy to our people. When it comes to per capita government spending, the United States has been near the bottom of the list of industrialized countries, next to Latvia and Estonia. And it wasn't always this way. In the mid-1960s, when white people constituted almost 90% of the population, government investment in the public good was seen as a positive. The U.S. had a high minimum wage, subsidized home ownership, good union jobs, strong financial protections, and a tax rate sufficient to fund research, infrastructure, and education. But as the civil rights movement demanded access for black people to the same opportunities and investments, and as the white population declined over the years, our overwhelmingly white policymakers began to reconsider just how good, how deserving the public really was. They instituted rapid changes to tax, labor, and trade laws that gave rise to today's inequality era in which 40% of adults before the pandemic weren't paid enough to meet their basic needs, and the top 1% owns as much wealth as the entire middle class. To deprive all Americans of the government investments that support a decent life makes sense only if you believe in the particular worldview that dominates public debate and policies in the U.S., 
This is the idea that we're trapped in a zero-sum game, and any improvement for people of color must come at the expense of white people. This is an old idea rooted in our nation's history. From our colonial beginnings, the U.S. economy depended on stolen land and stolen labor from racialized others to enrich white colonizers and slaveholders. Progress for those considered white did come directly at the expense of people considered non-white. This made it easy for the powerful to sell the idea that the inverse was also true, that liberation or justice for people of color would require taking something away from the masses of white people. Now, this racial zero-sum story has persisted to this day. I saw the zero-sum story in action in 2017 when a group of workers at a Nissan auto factory in Canton, Mississippi, voted against joining a union, although it would have increased their wages, benefits, and job security. I went to Mississippi to talk with factory workers about why so many had voted to reject the union, and it turns out the vote was largely along racial lines. One white worker explained the mentality this way. He said, if the blacks are for it, I'm against it. From the 1920s through the 1940s, towns and cities across America built resplendent, resort-style public swimming pools. It was part of a general New Deal-era social contract that said that government ought to ensure a higher standard of living for our people. This social contract included the New Deal's labor protections, housing subsidies, all the way through to the GI Bill, which sent a generation of veterans into homeownership and college education. I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to visit the site of the Oak Park Pool, which was the crown jewel of the Parks Department in in Montgomery, built during that era. It included a zoo, a community center, and of course, the pool and all of that in Montgomery were for whites only mirroring the racial exclusions in the New Deal all the way through to the housing subsidies and the GI Bill benefits I mentioned. Now, in 1958, Montgomery was faced with court action to integrate the pool. Black residents said, those are our tax dollars. Our kids should be able to swim too. Instead, the city council decided to drain the public pool rather than share it with their Black neighbors. They closed the entire parks department and kept it closed for over a decade. So did countless other towns across the U.S., from Ohio to Washington. These communities lost a public asset, and so did every family, white and black, not rich enough to build backyard pools and join membership-only swim clubs that cropped up across the country. The spirit that drained these public pools lives on, reflected in America's willingness to drain the pools of resources rather than actual swimming pools. I was surprised to learn, for example, that in 1956, an authoritative national survey indicated that 65% of white people believe that the government ought to guarantee a job to anyone who wanted one and to provide a minimum standard of living in the country. But white support for these ideas cratered to 35% between 1960 and 1964. What happened in between? 1963, the March on Washington, Black activists demanding actually these same economic guarantees. President Kennedy signaled that the party of the New Deal was also going to become the party of civil rights. His successor, Lyndon Johnson, 
would go on to sign the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of the white vote. Racism and zero-sum fears led white voters to support government actions that hurt them economically. The result has been a revolution in American economic policy, with the support of the majority of white voters. From high marginal tax rates and generous public investments in the middle class, to a low-tax, low-investment regime that's resulted in less than 1% annual income growth for 90% of Americans over the last 30 years. Last summer, Citigroup calculated that the racial economic divide cost the U.S. economy $16 trillion in growth over the past 20 years. Did you know that college used to be free? For generations, college-going white Americans could count on public money from federal or state governments to pay most, if not all, of the costs of their higher education. As late as 1976, state governments provided six out of every $10 of the cost of public college. Whatever was left over, an average of $617 at a four-year college in 1976, could be covered by a federal Pell Grant, not a loan. This public investment wasn't considered charity. States saw a return of three to four dollars for every dollar they invested in public colleges. When the public meant white, public colleges thrived. As the percentage of students of color in public colleges grew from one in six in 1980 to four in 10 today, support for ensuring college affordability fell among lawmakers who began to slash what they spent per student. By 2017, the majority of state colleges were relying on student tuition dollars for most of their expenses, even as the cost of the average public college tuition nearly tripled since 1991. This caused student debt to soar to over a trillion dollars in 2020. Eight out of 10 black graduates have to borrow, but student debt has now reached six out of 10 white public college graduates too. And it's stopping a whole generation from buying homes, marrying and starting families, saving for their retirement. When it comes to healthcare, racism has stopped us from ever filling the pool in the first place. Unlike our peer countries, we've never had publicly financed universal coverage. The Affordable Care Act is the closest we've come, and it's rarely gained even 50% of white support, although research reveals that white people are much less likely to oppose the program's ideas when told that a white politician, rather than President Obama, had proposed them. Thanks to racism and its disinvestments, Americans pay more for health care than other industrialized nations, yet we have worse health outcomes. This may harm people of color first and worst, but it hurts everyone. The idea of government is to help people achieve things that we simply can't achieve on our own. I can't create my own internet or electric grid or interstate highway system, but I can vote and advocate for policies that, with enough citizen support, make these things possible. I call these advances solidarity dividends. They're gains that could only be unlocked through collective action. But communities that are racially divided can't muster the power to win the policies they need, often leaving wealthy private interests to set the rules. I traveled to Richmond, California, which is one such community. Richmond is dominated by a massive Chevron oil refinery and dotted with hundreds of toxic industrial sites. North Richmond, the neighborhood that's 97% people of color, has disproportionately high rates of cancer and asthma. 
But when I examined the data, the nearby neighborhood of Point Richmond, predominantly white and wealthy, I found the same toxins in their air. We live under the same sky. To protect their land, water, and air, residents needed the power to exert some authority over Chevron's operations. But the oil company controlled Richmond City Council and used its clout and money to keep community groups competing with one another for influence. The only way for residents to have a say was for activists representing different ethnic communities and neighborhoods in Richmond to join together. It wasn't easy, but they did it, carefully identifying their shared concerns and building trust across racial lines. That multiracial coalition elected a mayor and a city council who stood up to Chevron, blocked a major plant expansion, and won community benefits that include a 60-acre solar energy field owned by the public. Richmond's solidarity dividend has resulted in cleaner air, new jobs, and the chance for better health. Thank you, Heather. If you'd like to hear more fresh takes on race and racism, the economy, and other pressing social issues, download our Next Big Idea app. You'll find surprising perspectives on social justice alongside thousands of other life-changing ideas. Just look for the Next Big Idea wherever you get your apps. And come on back here tomorrow when we'll hear from Thomas Curran, author of the new book, The Perfection Trap, Embracing the Power of Good Enough. I'm Michael Kovnett. See you then.